Welcome to this episode of Industries in Transition, a holistic look at the challenges, triumphs and lessons learned as businesses drive change to build a sustainable future. Hello and welcome to this special series of podcasts. I'm your host, Manisha Tank, and in today's episode, we handle the race to avert what some are calling a climate emergency. Unprecedented winter storms have besieged the southern United States, putting power and water offline. It's yet another brutal weather system sounding the alarm over climate change. So America has rejoined the Paris Accord on limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. China, meanwhile, the world's biggest consumer of coal, has committed to carbon neutrality by 2060. Many countries and corporations are on similar pathways, but even if everyone is headed in the same direction, are they on the fastest and most effective track? And how does putting a price on carbon help? One man who spends a lot of time thinking about this is Chris Leeds. He's Executive Director for Commodity Origination at Standard Chartered. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Manisha. Great to talk to you today. Now, look, I feel like this kind of conversation is the most important sort of conversation that we're having in our time. Basically, we're unleashing into the atmosphere more carbon than our planet can absorb, at least in our lifetimes. Chris, can you just outline how much carbon we're actually emitting and how much we need to reduce by? Yeah, I'd love to. So we currently emit over 50 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases a year. So that's a mixture of carbon dioxide and other gases. And we need to get that to net zero by 2050. And that's got to be done by the latest to have any chance of preventing temperature increases by less than two degrees. Now, the net in net zero is important here, as there will be some areas where it will be impossible to completely eradicate emissions, such as in agriculture or non-man-made sources. So we'll need to absorb as much carbon as we emit. And it's estimated that we have a carbon budget of 570 billion tonnes. In other words, that's as much as we can allow to be emitted ever. At this rate, we will have used that budget up in 10 years. Now, realistically, we need to start cutting emissions drastically now and to have halved them by 2030. We cut emissions by 5% last year due to the pandemic. The trick will be to do that every year going forward while allowing economic growth at the same time. Wow, so there's an absolute mountain to climb, at least that's what it feels like. People have been talking, Chris, about carbon markets as a way to solve this problem. They've been having that conversation for decades. Are they the answer and how do they actually work? I would say they are one of the answers and they go along with a number of other policies to cut greenhouse gases and to invest in technology for reducing emissions, such as taxes and other subsidies. What a carbon market does is it puts a price on emitting carbon dioxide by putting a limit on the amount of CO2 that can be emitted by large polluters. Governments can then sell those allowances to make the polluter pay. So, for example, in Europe, the emissions trading scheme does exactly that. As coal emits more than twice as much CO2, and it's one of the biggest emitters has been over many years, and particularly in in Europe and elsewhere, that we use to generate electricity, emits twice as much CO2 as the next most polluting fuel, natural gas. And having a price for those emissions has meant that coal has become less and less competitive. In the UK, for example, there were long periods last year where coal was not used at all, and the last coal plants were expected to close in 2025. Meanwhile, emissions for renewable power has got cheaper and cheaper and now produces over 40% of the UK's electricity. Now, it's not all down to carbon trading, but carbon trading has a very, very big part to play in that. And what we want to see is that same scheme rolled out elsewhere in the world. And that's what the argument's about at the moment, about how we do that. 
Yeah, exactly. That's what I was wondering. Because if I've got this right, we've got to balance out how carbon is traded across countries, haven't we? And across companies. We've got to know who's producing what. I guess it's fine if you can afford to let go of coal, but some countries just can't. The largest economies obviously produce the most emissions. And China and the US emit around 45% of the world's carbon emissions between them. And this has been the point of various agreements put in place by world governments to reduce greenhouse gases over the last 30 years. This includes the Kyoto Protocol that was signed in 1997 and the Paris Agreement, which has now replaced the Kyoto Protocol, which was signed in 2015. Now, the reason there's been so much disagreement is that until recently, it was too costly to move from cheap fossil fuels to relatively more expensive low carbon alternatives, as you say, and particularly when that carbon cost was not factored in. Also, the argument was that the developed world had over 100 years to grow their economies using whatever fuel they wanted. They had put the most of the greenhouse gas into the atmosphere in the first place. So it was unfair to constrain growing countries like China and India. The Kyoto Protocol dealt with that by putting a cap on developed countries only. And this is why the US would not accept it. Since then, the disparity in emissions has reduced considerably, obviously with the growth of China and India, and they've caught up pretty quickly. And while emissions in the developed world have fallen, they have risen overall globally because of the growth elsewhere. So that's why the Paris Agreement came in in 2015. And it tried to rectify that by giving everyone reduction targets. They're not exactly clear limitations, but they've all got targets. And that's what they've got to sign up for. Now, in Europe, they are very clear and and very much about reducing. We now hear about countries committing to reduce their emissions by a certain date and to get to net zero at some other date. For example, the UK now has committed to cut its greenhouse gases by 68% from 1990 levels by 2030, and the EU has a target of 55%, both aiming to be net zero by 2050. Companies too are also committing to net zero targets, usually with a focus of 2050. As of 2020, more than 1,500 companies have net zero targets, and that's up three times in 2019. These targets cover over 3.5 billion tonnes of greenhouse gases, an amount greater than Indians' annual emissions. So this is a really good step forward, but more needs to be done. And we still have huge, huge work left to really be able to share these targets equally and to make sure that the emissions reductions are made very, very quickly indeed. Yep, absolutely. And we know that it's been clearly off again, but now it's back on again. America has rejoined the Paris Agreement. China has set that neutrality goal for 2060. How impactful is it when you've got economies of that size signing up to these commitments? It's a huge change this year, and it's obviously very, very welcome indeed. With just under half of global greenhouse gas emissions between them, having the US and China commit to cut emissions is absolutely critical. Without them, there's little chance of keeping global temperatures increases below that critical two degrees level that we're aiming for. In addition, both have huge amount of money and expertise that can be used to make the reductions required. China is now a powerhouse in renewables with a huge share of the wind and solar markets, both in terms of installed capacity, so the, their ability to generate low-carbon electricity, and in terms of manufacturing capacity, which obviously is then being used around the world. The US is also seeing a rapid transformation from coal to natural gas and also renewables. Texas has more wind farms than France, and companies like Tesla and Microsoft are both at the forefront of decarbonizing the economy. With the US back in the Paris Agreement, it will give even more impetus behind the Conference of the Parties, the COP meeting that many people have heard about, probably don't know a huge amount about it, that's happening in Glasgow this November. 
It's an incredibly important event. It's where every five years the uh, Paris Agreement is due to be reviewed. So this is the first five-year review. It was obviously supposed to happen last December, but didn't because of the pandemic. So this is the first five-year review since the agreement was signed in 2015. And it really enables people to see where they are and to then make those further commitments. The UK has gone first as the host with its commitment to be reduced by 68%. We're hoping many others will follow suit and we'll see some hopefully big announcements uh, at the event this year. Chris, slightly out of left field question for you, and this is going back to that neutrality goal of 2060 for China. That is still 30 years out from the much quoted 2030 decade of delivery. Earlier, you talked about how we needed to get emissions down sharply by then. When I first heard that announcement, and maybe others too, they felt, well, that's quite a long way off. What's your view? Look, it's massively significant. And it's not just the 2060 target that we've got to focus on. One would like it to be sooner. You've also got to focus on the fact that they're going to peak their emissions in 2025. That's just four years away. And this is amazing. This is incredible for a country that was growing its emissions very much in lockstep with its economic growth. So to be able to see those emissions peak in 2025 is an enormous step forward. It means that they are going to be making those reductions from 2025 onwards. As we know with the Chinese and their five-year plans, when they say they're going to do it, they generally deliver. They know now that they have the capabilities, they have the technology, and it's not going to be detrimental to their economy to be able to commit to these targets and to see those emissions fall. Would we like to see them fall sooner? Absolutely. But it's a massive step forward to see those two commitments. It's not just about the 2060 target, it's also about the 2025 target. That will push other countries, which don't have any targets at all, remember. I don't think India has a target yet for net zero. It will probably help to push other countries along that route. And that's what we want to see. And again, hopefully there'll be some other announcements in Glasgow in November. All right. So there's a lot that we can achieve having a carbon market, looking at this by putting a price on emissions, right? But there are limitations too. Let's talk about that now. And let's talk about the economics. Does it work? Well, look, it's all well and good in economic theory. And the idea, as I said earlier, is about putting a price on it, making the polluter pay. And I think that's absolutely right. And there are different ways that we can go about doing that, which I think we'll talk about in a minute. But creating a market in something with no intrinsic value, such as carbon dioxide, is difficult. You need to promote scarcity and you have to strictly limit the right to emit so that it can be traded. And that's what we've seen in the European emissions trading scheme. Now, some say it is too complex, but it's been done. In the EU ETS after the 2008 financial crisis, there was a glut of permits that meant prices were too low to have a meaningful impact on greenhouse gas emissions. There was also a cost for moving from polluting industries to low carbon ones that affects jobs and livelihoods. But it's the same for any attempt to change the economy and to reduce those carbon emissions. Whatever tool that we use, there is going to be some pain. And in fact, with carbon trading, the money earned by the government selling permits can be reallocated back to communities that need to adjust. Obviously, it's down to politics and it's down to how governments want to do that. But there is going to be money that's being taken from the emitters and put back into the economy. That can be used to soften the adjustment process. Now, allowances are also often given away for free to support industries that find it difficult to cut emissions, such as steel and cement production, where the emissions reductions are very difficult and very costly. They are what we call process emissions. That's what happens when you make cement, the process that occurs. And a strict carbon restrictions can mean that they could simply move their production overseas to countries without limits. 
Now, one way of solving that is to introduce a carbon border tariff on imports from those countries where there are no limits. That's one way of helping to manage the inequities of the system. Now, one other area that we have to look at is when using carbon offsets, which are gained by paying for pollution reductions elsewhere. So investing into avoided deforestation or reforestation. And this is where the voluntary carbon markets come in. Carbon offsets can help to reduce the cost of emissions reductions and speed up the reduction rate for those hard to abate sectors that I've mentioned, the steel and cement sectors, the aviation sectors and transportation. But it's important to make sure that these projects are verifiable, that they're additional, that they're additional to what would have happened anyway. They're real and irreversible. Now, this is what the Task Force for Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets that Bill Winters chairs is aiming to ensure and aiming to make sure that, that this provides a really solid base for, for carbon trading and for making sure that emissions reductions actually happen. Yeah, I know that's something that Bill Winters is very passionate about, as are many leaders today. On a practical level, though, to achieve these targets what can we do? I'm thinking about modern technology. I'm thinking about distributed ledgers. Can they help us track something that you described as having no intrinsic value? There's a possibility for it. I mean, I definitely think that that technology has a huge role to play. The carbon markets are at a very early stage of development. And when you look at the carbon markets, there is this natural tracking that's needed. Something like distributed ledger technology can bring to help solve that issue. So when you make an emissions reduction, how do you know it's been made? Who's made it? Where is it being made? And then how do you actually track that carbon credit that's being created? to make sure that those emissions reductions are happening, and then to make sure that the credit is only used once, that it's absolutely unique, and that it's not double counted, it's not double claimed, and it is used to prove an emissions reduction. So I know that there's an awful lot of work looking at using distributed ledger technology for this purpose. It's a really important area that can help to provide a basis on which to trade carbon emissions and to provide that integrity. So I think that's really interesting. Technology can help in many, many other ways in terms of actually solving the emissions reductions and the climate crisis. And we've seen it applied most obviously in the development of renewable energy. So the cost of wind turbines and solar panels has has dropped dramatically over the last two decades as the demand for emissions reductions has increased. And as we heard earlier, renewable energy is now responsible for 40% of energy supply in the UK. The quest is now on for the next technology to support further decarbonisation. Electric vehicles and battery technology are obviously one area, as we're seeing with the move to electric vehicles and the impact that Tesla's having. Many other technologies essential to decarbonising the economy, such as sustainable aircraft fuel, green hydrogen and direct air capture, are also at a turning point where well-invested capital can accelerate their path to market. But without a coordinated effort, they will take too long to come down the cost curve to eliminate what we call the green premium. Too many of these technologies are currently significantly more expensive than the fossil fuel incumbents they are designed to replace. Now, it's taken solar 30 years to commercialise through long-term investments and incentive schemes. We need to replicate that process with a host of new technologies in the next 10 years. And most of these technologies are harder to solve, but carbon pricing can help those incentives to get capital needed to drive down the costs of abatement, with the ultimate goal of taking these innovations from large-scale demonstrations that we see at the moment to full market development in a very short space of time. Yeah, of course. And one of the things that's really helped on the development of alternatives has been subsidies, right? But let's talk about the opposite of that. Let's talk about tax. Can't we just tax all that carbon? 
Carbon pricing is one way of reducing emissions, but there are other ways to go about tackling the problem. Subsidies are one way, but a carbon tax is another. And carbon tax is essentially the other side of the policy to coin to carbon trading. With a carbon tax, you know the cost, but you don't know how many emissions reductions you will achieve. Carbon trading sets the cap, set the amount of emissions reductions that you have to make, but you don't know the price. A carbon tax is essentially the other way around. If you set a carbon tax at, say, $10 a tonne, only those with the marginal abatement, in other words, with the ability to reduce emissions below that cost, will actually cut their emissions. And so you'll only see emissions reductions from those people with that ability to make the cut. If it costs others $20, $30, $40, $50 a tonne to make reductions, they're not going to do it because the tax incentive's not big enough. So that, I think, is something that you need to think about, how that tax is, is adjusted. And also, tax is quite often politically unacceptable. And this is part of the problem. When politicians come in and say we're going to tax something that was never taxed before, it's taking away something from people. And that's where we've seen difficulties. We've seen the the gilets jaunes in France. The complaints there were initiated because of the tax on fuel. And we see other places where it, it becomes difficult. Carbon trading can help to change that approach because it's not seen as a tax. It's seen as a, a way of reducing emissions at least cost. So I think that that's something to to consider. Okay, I know that Standard Chartered has produced an impact report when it comes to sustainable finance. But this question over impact, does it need to get better being able to track and trace and understand the impact of whether or not it's a tax or trading a carbon credit or the impact of, say, use of an alternative fuel? So where could there be improvements on measuring impact? So I think this is something that we're looking at all the time. Uh, We really need to see how those impacts are being made and what companies are doing to reduce their carbon emissions. The TCFD, or the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, was set up by Mark Carney when he was chair of the Financial Stability Board back in 2015. So its purpose was uh, to help organisations properly assess and price climate-related risks and opportunities. First of all, we need to be able to measure the impact, and then we need to be able to show how we're reducing it. And so that links into these other policies and these other ideas around the net zero commitments. Because if you don't know what your emissions are in the first place, it's difficult to actually talk about how you're going to reduce that. We talk about scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. Now, these may not be very familiar to people at the moment, but I think they will become more familiar. And the idea is is that scope one is your own emissions. If you're burning fossil fuels directly, then that's scope one. Scope two is where somebody else is burning fossil fuels on your behalf and you're using that. So it might be through your use of electricity. If 70% of that comes from a coal-fired power station, that's part of your scope two emissions. Scope three emissions are the results of activities not owned or controlled by that organisation. They're also known as value chain emissions, and they often represent the majority of an organisation's emissions. So, for example, for an airline, it would be the people taking their flights. That would be their scope three emissions, the passengers. Whereas for an oil company, the oil companies scope through emissions would relate to the people using their products. These are areas that we're looking at all the time. They're incredibly important in terms of being able to measure that impact as you talk about. So which are the most successful stories of carbon reduction you can share? I think it's worth looking at what happened in China and India at the turn of the last decade by allowing investors to sell carbon credits. And these were generated under the Kyoto Protocol. There's controversy around there, but these did generate from their emission reduction projects. It created an incentive that helped transform renewable energy generation in India and China. New manufacturing techniques have have been a major driver behind the decline in solar prices over the last 20 years, and it's seen the development of more compact and efficient panel designs that require fewer resources overall. 
China in particular has made massive investments into all sectors of the solar industry over that time. Investment through the carbon market was one of the factors that led to China's rapid growth as an industry leader. Analysts credit the 80% decline in global panel prices that occurred between 2008 and 2013 to the rapid growth of the Chinese solar industry supported by revenue received from the carbon markets at that time. So I think it is worth noting that we have seen the impact of carbon markets already. And that was one area where I think that it certainly created success. Okay, Chris, so we're almost at the end. Final question. How is Standard Chartered doing its bit? Well, I think we're doing an enormous amount to move us to a net zero world. We we recently made a public commitment to achieve net zero through our financing by 2050. This reflects the importance of long-term goals aligned to climate science, which can then guide capital allocation consistent with limiting global warming to one and a half degrees. In support of this, Standard Chartered is creating net zero roadmap and helping our clients with this change. It's incredibly important that we work with clients to ensure that they are able to reduce their emissions in line with the science. And to support our goals, we've committed to mobilise 75 billion by the end of 2024 in project financing for infrastructure that promotes sustainable development and financing towards clean technology. And most of this is sitting in the developed world in Asia, Middle East and Africa, which is where our footprint in. We see this as absolutely critical for decarbonising the global economy by 2050. Okay, so a major initiative for you to get behind. Chris, we have to leave it there. But thanks so much for taking time out to discuss something that's such a vast and urgent topic. Chris Leeds, Executive Director, Commodity Origination at Standard Chartered, joining us from a lockdown in London. I'm so grateful to get all of those views today. It's been a real education. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anisha. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for tuning in to Industries in Transition, brought to you by Standard Chartered. Supporting clients for over 150 years, Standard Chartered empowers businesses and inspires change through ambitious social and environmental initiatives. Standard Chartered, driving commerce and prosperity whilst contributing to sustainable growth across the world's most dynamic markets.